Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to Ferment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts on this weekly journey in all things fermentable on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Also archived on iTunes and Stitchers. So what do we have this week, Chris? <laughs> well, actually, it's the last few days that you can sign up for Homebrew Alley 8. Uh, it's one of the largest competitions on the East Coast, homebrew competitions. And uh, go to homebrewalley.com for more information. The deadline for registering your beers and also for uh, getting your beers to New York City is January 31st. Also coming up in February, late February, we have New York City Beer Week starting on February 21st, and we're going to have a giant uh, showcase and a fun grand old time at uh, Grand Central Terminal, and it's the first time Grand Central Terminal, their Vanderbilt Hall, has ever hosted a beer festival at all of this kind, so we're super psyched about this. And that's a grand opening bash on Friday? February 21st. That's Friday, February 21st. That's right, Friday, February 21st at Grand Central Terminal. We're super psyched. It's A lot of work has gone into this. It's going to be an awesome bash and have some really fun music happening, and we have a sick beer lineup uh, from brewers of all kinds. So Chris and I actually just got off the plane. We're now in Hong Kong, but we wanted to bring you this special show. This is actually pre-taped at a Virtue Cider Tasting at Jimmy's Number 43 back in October of 2013 during New York Cider Week. We were very lucky to attend. Greg Hall, who is the owner and head cider maker of Virtue Cider, led us through a tasting and really you know, gave some great insights on cider making in America and the history, etc. Um, you'll also hear Steve Woods, who's the owner of Poverty Lane Orchards and Farnham Hill in New Hampshire. And um, you're going to hear Jimmy's Jimmy Carbone from Jimmy's Number 43 and Beer Sessions Radio as well in the background. So welcome as we um, learn some more about cider. Maybe some cackling from me. <laughs> Definitely. My background being a craft brewer, I started in uh, craft brewing in 1988. My father was kind enough to open up a brewery for me to work at called Goose Island. So I worked there from 88 until... Uh, until just a couple years ago, 2011, when we ended up selling the business, and I decided I, want, I kind of followed my heart toward the orchard and uh, decided I wanted to make cider. Um, I really first got into cider in, in the year 2000 when I took a trip with um, six of our other, my, my colleagues at Goose Island over to England to visit English breweries. And on our uh, last couple days there, we were up in the, the city of York, and visited a great pub called The Maltings. Anybody been to The Maltings? Great pub. But they were doing a cider fest, much like we're doing here today. But they had 40 different uh, casks of cider from all around the country on tap. And uh, we decided we wanted to taste every single one of them. And uh, I was, before that day, I was cider ignorant. I thought cider was either... um, you know, cold and sweet and brown in the fall and delicious, or not quite as 
brown and not quite as sweet um, and certainly not quite as delicious and served at 5 a.m. in Irish bars when soccer games were going on. <laughs> so that's what I thought of, of, uh, of cider. And then um, all of a sudden, I, I tasted all these wonderful ciders, and my palate opened up, and I kind of felt like the guys I would make fun of who came into uh, Goose Island and asked if we made any domestic beer. You know, I, I was the ignorant one. And I tasted all this, and it, it really got me excited about it. And we always said at Goose Island we were going to make cider one day, and it never happened. So when the company um, changed hands, it was a great opportunity for me to go off and make cider. Uh, the other the other really thing that inspired me is um, I've got a lot of friends in the chef community in Chicago, and I would see them every Wednesday and every Saturday at the local farmer's market, the Green City Market, and uh, they're buying their carrots and their onions and their cauliflower and their greens and everything directly from their farmers, um, which I thought was just so wonderful. And as a brewer, I got to go out to the Yakima Valley and, and select hops every September. So I'd go out there and I'd rub out, rub out all these bales of hops and sniff them and we'd pick our hops and we'd go out and walk the fields with the growers. I'd be out there for two days and I'd leave and I wouldn't come back for another year. And you don't really, as a brewer, you don't participate in agriculture really at all. You know, you're buying agricultural pro products, but most brewers aren't lucky enough to know where their hops come from and aren't very few know where their barley comes from. They buy malt, and the maltster doesn't even know where their barley comes from because they buy it from a, a co-op. So um, as a cider maker in, in Michigan, we like know our, our growers by name. They live in our community. Um, we get to see them in the springtime when the, when the, the, uh, the fields are in bloom. We, we visit them all during the year and uh, break bread with them drink coffee with them when it's cold in the in the morning and drink cider with them at night. So it's great to be part of uh, of the agricultural community. And I think there's no adult beverage that is as agricultural as cider is. It's just so agricultural. Um, we are starting to grow a little bit of fruit on our farm. We put in 400 trees this past year. Anybody who's not a cider maker, they're like, 400 trees, wow! Anybody who is a cider maker is like, 400 trees? <laughs> Steve, how many trees do you have? 15,000. 15,000, right. Right. So, right. Right. Yes, he knows everyone by name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How's Uncle Larry doing? Uncle Larry down. So it's, it's really fun to be part of the, the cider community. Um, we make, uh, one of the things we, we wanted to do from the start was make a range of ciders. And as a brewer, one of the things I noticed when I went over to Europe and visited breweries I'd go to England, and the English brewers would be like, yeah, we make the good beer, the German beers are all boring, and the Belgian beers are all infected. And I'd go to Germany, and they'd be like, we make the good beer, the English beers are all kind of warm and flat and bitter, and the Belgian beers are all infected. And the Belgians would say, our beer is good, and the, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and I, and I kind of feel like it's the same way with, with cider makers. 
and I was just at this cider tasting, and there was an English cider maker there who I won't name, but he's like, I really can't drink this Spanish stuff. I can't drink it. It's just, it's too much. I like it. I like it all. I think it's great, and I think that's what makes America great, is like, we make every kind of beer, we make every kind of cheese, we make every kind of cuisine, and, uh, you know, at least what we're trying to do at Virtue is make every kind of cider. So we've got three different nations represented um, with, with uh, what we're pouring today. Um, we think the three main cider countries. We think um, the English ciders, you know, to really give you a, the Reader's Digest version, English ciders tend to be a little more apple forward and have a little more tannin in the finish. Steve, you concur there? French ciders tend to be not apple forward, they tend to be more fermentation forward, and they tend to be a little sweeter and rounder in the finish. Um, they, they, can, they can be tannic, they can be softer. Um, but they, uh, and then the Spanish ciders are completely different. Um, and I think they're all wonderful in their, own, in their own way. I think one of the big differences about making beer and making cider, obviously, you got apples versus barley and, and hops. But when you're making beer, you're making beer typically to a recipe. You pick your ingredients, you measure them out, you control your process and you make your recipe. And then at the end of the day, or the week, or the month, whenever your, your beer is ready, you, you get an expected beer out of that batch. Cider is completely different. Cider, when you're making cider, you're taking the apples and pressing them and fermenting them, and they become a component of a cider. Most, pretty much all the English ciders, French cider makers I, I've met, they blend. That's the real art of cider making. That's when they make their cider, is when they blend it. So you're, you're really focusing on letting the apples kind of go their way. You press the apples, sometimes they're going to be a little more acidic, sometimes they're more tannic, sometimes they're more aromatic, but they're, they're different all the time. Every apple on every tree is going to be a little bit different. They're different with the seasons, they're different early season, late season, they're different from different orchards. You just can't make the exact same cider time after time when you're using different apples from different orchards at different times in the season. So. Um, some of us don't even try. We just try to make the best cider we can and let the apples kind of go the way they want to go. And then once they get there, we say, okay, we'll blend some of this and some of this and put it together and it'll fit with what we're trying to get to. So the first cider we've got is a, a cider called Red Streak, right? Yeah. So Red Streak is our English dry cider. We actually make three different ciders to make this. Um, each one with a different set of apples and a different and a different yeast, cultivated yeast. We ferment them independently and then we blend it together and then we add some. Uh, with that, we we um, age some of that in in American oak, new American oak barrels, about ten percent, and blend that back in. So, in many ways, it's more complex a process than any beer I ever made as a brewer because we're making three independent ciders, then we barrel age some of it, then we blend it, but the blend is never like a ratio, it's all the taste every time. Because they're all each component is gonna be a little bit different.
So it should start with a good amount of apple on the nose. It's got a lot of acidity. Got a little little bit of a barrel in the back end. Question? Yes. Every cider that we make touches wood. So we have um, not not Steve Wood. The beer all week. Right. So we have uh, we have in our in our shop about 550 barrels. We have uh, a range of different types of barrels. We've got new American oak barrels, which are full of tannin, and the cider that comes out of those new American oak barrels tastes like drinking furniture. There's it's so crazy tannic. So that's what we put in in, in Red Street at only about 10 percent. So you get a little bit of that tannin, but it's not crazy. Um, we use some French oak, some uh, French oak used uh, wine barrels from um, California. Some that are with that have been aged with white wine. We use that for one one cider. We use uh, some that are aged with red wine, and then we also use some that have been rejected from the winery because they show positive for a wild yeast called Brett. Anybody know what Brett is? Yay. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> So, yes, we, when they said we're rejecting some barrels for Brett, we say, me, 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 me. We want all of those barrels. So we've got a bunch of those, and uh, we'll tell you about um, how we use those in a little bit. And we also get some um, American bourbon barrels that are American oak. Uh, we, we have a relationship with a distiller called Heaven Hill, and we get uh, typically 12-year-old barrels from Heaven Hill and eight cider in those. So we use all kinds of different wood uh, products to, uh, to age our cider in. Now this is not made with any, any traditional cider fruit. This is made with uh, heritage North American fruit like uh, Northern Spy, Ida Red, uh, Macintosh, some English fruit like Cox Orange Pippin. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different fruit in here, but the base of this is a fruit called Northern Spy, which is very prevalent in Northern Michigan. We use a lot of that. And then we use a lot of Macintosh because of all the apples we've tried, it's the most aromatic. We really like that, that one. Excellent. Okay, so who's ready for the next cider? And what I miss most about brewing is brewers, the guys that I got to brew with. I miss all those guys. I still talk to a lot of them pretty regularly. But uh, we had a great crew at Goose Island, and I miss a lot of those guys. Many of them are still there. Many of them have gone on to other breweries, um, you know, all over the country. Uh, Southern Tier here in New York. It's run by an old Goose Brewer. Firestone Walker out in California. Um, Bells has got a bunch of Goose guys. Lagunitas has got a bunch of old Goose guys. Uh, about half the breweries in the Chicago area have a bunch of Goose guys. Revolution is 100% old Goose guys. So... Um, uh, uh, off colors, ex goose guys. So, Penrose Brewing, ex goose guys. Uh, yeah. So there's there's. So like, when you went to England, for example, what what are some of the cider makers in England that you got to work with or you appreciate their product? Well, there's a lot of great cider makers in England. I really I I, I, I gravitate more to the small guys and the big guys. Um, you know, Tom Oliver is kind of my mentor over there. Yeah, Tom Oliver. Yeah. So uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, do a couple of collaborations with Tom. 
Um, I think you guys have poured the, the gold rush here yes. before, so that's a cider that he made over in England after we had a night of drinking. And uh, my contribution to that was sending him a JPEG of our logo that he could put on the back of his label. Uh, so that's about how much of a collaboration it was. And then um, this year he came over and helped us blend the Ledbury cider, which is another one of our English ciders, which we made with uh, Steve Wood's uh, juice, so um, that was kind of a three-way collaboration. So what percentage of your, your juice is uh, outsourced versus your homegrown orchards? We don't, we don't, right now we have 400 trees that are sticks, so we have no apples right now. So yeah, we, and part of our mission is, is to support local agriculture. And I was talking to a pig farmer, Mr. Pig Farmer. Is it Dan the Pig Farmer? Mike, Mike, Mike the Pig Farmer. Wave, wave, Pig Farmer. Wave, yes. So, you know, one of the things that we feel real strongly about is, you know, not only do we want to make great cider, but we want to, we want to help change kind of the agricultural climate. And we want to um, have farmers, you know, we think farmers are heroes. Since 2001, Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. But, but farmers typically are, are about the hardworking, hardest working Americans. And, you know, if it rains, they got to work. Um, if it snows, if it's cold, if it's dry and hot, if there's the big game on, they got to work. You know, they're always working. And, uh, and they're doing it so that we can all eat and we can all come out to a place like this and eat and drink and have fun. Um, and uh, they don't get days off, they don't get two week vacations. Uh, with their kids in the summer. That's when it's super busy. So um, we want we want them to be successful. So we're buying, uh, we're trying to pay, pay a fair rate for our apples and get our local family farmers to um, grow apples that we can, we'll, we can afford to pay extra for. Um, cider fruit costs more, it should cost more. We're willing to pay more for it. And uh, if we grow it ourselves, then we can't impact the community enough. So we like buying fruit. We'll always buy most of our fruit from other farmers. And uh, we think that, that the more we can do that, the more we can kind of help out the state of Michigan and, uh, and, and all the apple growers there. Right now there's about 1,000 apple growers in the state of Michigan. Forty years ago there were about 4,000 apple growers in the state of Michigan. We want to keep it around 1,000. We don't want to see it get down to like 300 or so. Uh, we wanted people growing apples and passing it down to the next generation. I was with two, um, two uh, 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 
cider makers um, at, at Murray's, one who was fifth generation, one who was eighth generation. Um, that doesn't happen in America anymore. That's very sad. How many generations do you see? First generation. Me too. So, there you go. We're starting fresh. Yeah. Start procreating. We can procreate. Right. <laughs> Get to it. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of the growers that we buy from in Michigan that are third or fourth generation. And they got kids that, you know, are probably not going to stay in the farm um, unless they can make money doing it. And they can't make money doing it if they're selling their apples um, to a processor who, sent, who sells them to Tropicana, you know, for 89 cents a gallon. You know, if they're selling fruit for six cents a pound, which right now that's what fruit's going for in Michigan, there's no money there. You can't make a living. So, um, you know, if if even at 12 cents a pound, which is kind of a more standard rate, you can't make a living on that. So we're willing to pay more for good fruit, and we think that if if it makes our cider better, we can that the public will will go ahead and pay more for a cider. You know, and I think Steve's proved that works. I, I was yeah. All right. Yeah. I have resolved not to interrupt this man, but I've got to tell you, what he just said is absolutely true, and I honor him for doing what he's doing. Growers can stay in business if somebody will pay them to grow the fruit. So you not, nobody will ever plant an acre of processing apples for two bucks a bushel when it takes $10,000 an acre to even get the thing in the ground. But if there are people who are willing to actually pay for the value of the fruit to go into these glasses, and Greg's in an extreme minority right now, but it's growing, that is going to have a significant effect on agricultural good orchard land in this country. So I raise my glass to this gentleman. Cheers. 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 Absolutely. Great. I want to ask you this. So I know that you, you put a lot of time into uh, you know studying and learning about the history of cider. Um, tell us about like the, the, you know the old days in America and what hard cider meant. Well, you know if um, if you go back um, certainly uh, 300 years ago, uh, there were more people drinking cider than every other beverage put together. Not alcoholic beverage, every other beverage put together. Um, as, as the colonists started to move west, um, they, they generally had three things with them. Uh, you know, here's a shout out to the Second Amendment. They had their musket, they had their, their axe, their throwing axe, a, a shout out to my friend Michael over there, and they had apple seeds or a seedling tree. Because when, whenever, wherever they landed, wherever they homesteaded, you know, they needed to protect themselves, they needed to chop up wood, and they needed to uh, make cider. They could not run down to Jimmy's 43 to get a pint. They couldn't go to Whole Foods and pick up a six-pack. Um, they, they couldn't go to Top Hops and fill a growler. You know, if they wanted to drink something, they, they had kind of three choices. They could either, like, drink... Um, Rainwater or groundwater, and um, and there's risk there. They could drink um, they could drink milk if they brought a cow with them, and if they drank it like right from the cow, they were they were reasonably assured they wouldn't die immediately. And then um, and then they could they could they could make cider and be safe. When I went to brewing school, when I went to brewing school, they wrote this on the chalkboard the first day. 
in wine is wisdom. They, they left outsider. But they said, in wine is wisdom, in beer is, is strength, in water is bacteria. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes. So, you know, um, we, all, we all think of, of uh, alcohol as being the fun time drink. But up until about 100 years ago, it was the life-giving drink. It was the drink you drank so you wouldn't die. Because anything else you drank, you might die. Because you had no idea if it was going to be clean or not. You, you kind of expected it probably wouldn't be. Um, so we, uh, we're very lucky to have sources of fresh water and drinks everywhere all the time now. Access to them, especially in, 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 in the U.S. But... Um, um, alcohol, you know, as, as many of us historians know, that the, 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 the pilgrims landed the Mayflower in Plymouth Rock. Why? Because they ran out of beer. They didn't think Plymouth Rock was the best place to land. They just didn't have any more beer. And when you're going on a boat from England to across the ocean, you, you couldn't, like, buy a couple pallets of Evian you know, you basically had to bring some booze with you, so it would be safe. So, um, cider's been part of America for a very long time. Um, really up until uh, uh, beer started getting really big in the 1870s, 1880s. And, and what happened then was people started going to the cities, and production of beer became much more commercial and much more focused in the cities. And beer, by nature, is easier to produce in bulk because the raw materials of barley and corn and wheat are easy to much easier to store than apples are. Apples are cider's easier to produce on the farm because you don't need any specialized equipment. All you need is an apples in a barrel, and you can make cider. Um, but if you're going to make a big commercial amount of it, it's it's easier to make beer. So beer became big. Then they then they started doing these train things and being able to ship it all over, and uh, and cider started going away. And then um, and then it, with prohibition, everybody knows about like the axe, you know. And they think it was like to bust up barrels. It was really to chop down apple trees. We lost, you know, somewhere somewhere between fifty to sixty percent of the apple trees in the Great Lakes region. Um, in prohibition because the, the prohibitionists chopped them down because apple trees meant cider. That's where kind of the apple industry came up with an apple a day and like bring an apple for your teacher. Apples weren't for eating until about 100 years ago. They were for making cider in the good old days. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're happy to bring those back. I grew up in suburban Chicago. We had a crab apple tree in our yard. And I, I thought they were the only thing they were for is the run of my sister. But they were actually for making cider. Who knew? Back then. Huge thanks to Greg Hall of Virtue Cider, Steve Woods of Farnham Hill, and Jimmy Carbone of Jimmy's Number 43 and Beer Sessions Radio for their help in this episode. And Jimmy for hosting it at, at the restaurant. Absolutely. Awesome. It's a fantastic tasting, one of many that, that Jimmy has throughout the year. And to all people who put on New York Cider Week, it's pretty. It's an awesome event. I think it's a second or third year running now. Uh, really, really great things happening. I love it. <laughs> all right, we'll be back next week with part two of our kimchi show with um, Kimchi Licious 
Tony Limwaco, and he's going to be talking about cooking with kimchi. So join us at 7 p.m. next week for Cooking with Kimchi with Tony Limwaco on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For men about it. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.